If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Throughout history, People have sought to alter society through genetic intervention. And as Adam Rutherford reveals in his new book, Control, the history of eugenics has been a troubling story of prejudice and manipulation. As he told me on today's podcast, its effects have frequently been devastating. Just to let you know, we had some technical issues with Adam's end of this podcast recording. That meant we had to use a backup recording instead So apologies if the sound quality in today's episode isn't up to our usual standard. Your new book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, explores a really thorny and difficult issue that has run throughout history and continues to be really significant. But before we go any further, let's just make sure that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about here. Can you define eugenics for us? Well, it's a really, really sensible question to ask. And the answer is no, not really. Uh, And so there there are, there have been definitions of eugenics over the years. And uh, in the mid to late 19th century, the the word itself is a neologism. And it was coined by Francis Galton, who's the sort of figurehead at the top of the eugenics uh, ideology. Because I do argue in the book that it is a political ideology rather than a science. Um, And of the various definitions, I think... The, maybe the best way to describe it is it, it, it's a it, it's a it's a top down or state enforced attempts to change populations 
um, to improve the quality of populations by whatever metric uh, when we're talking about quality can be applied um, by selective breeding. So over the years, there have been a, a lot of a lot of different attempts to try and sort of pin down what the idea is, but it, it emerges at a time which is post the origin of species in 1859, and Dalton is in fact Darwin's half-cousin and heavily influenced by him. But the idea, the key idea is, is the recognition in the Victorian era that humans are animals and that evolution by natural selection is a real thing and has described accurately the sort of radiation of species across the world over the last four billion years. And Dalton, amongst others, wants to apply this idea, not of natural selection, but of artificial selection to humans. And the parallel often given, including by Galton and many other people, including right up into the present day, the analogy is with agricultural breeding. If we can breed sheep or cows or you know, roses or corn or whatever, and humans are biological and um, are not immutable, we can be changed over generational time, then we should apply these ideas, these Darwinian ideas to humans in order to make the, the the population stock, to use the Victorian term, mm. uh, better. You said there that you view eugenics as an ideology rather than a science. And something you say in the book is that all science is ultimately political. Can you explain what you mean there in terms of, if we're looking at this in terms of eugenics? But the reason I say that science is all political, which is a slightly provocative thing to say to some scientists uh, who often react negatively to, to that statement, is the reason I say that is because well, it's, it's twofold, really. The first is that I know that science, the objectives of science and the principles of science are to elevate ourselves above the grubby worlds of politics and history and, um, you know, to, to bypass all the psychological biases that, that humans carry with us and to aim for a higher truth. There's an objective reality out there and the point of science is to, is, is to tap into that, is to try and pursue that truth. But the truth is that human, humans do science and science is a human endeavour. And so while it is true that I, I don't know, quantum physics is less political than what we're talking about. As long as science is done by humans, it will have a political element to it. My last book was about the history of, of race and the invention of race and race science, which forms the fundamental basis of the modern inception of biology, right? So in, in, that, in that sense, there isn't a way to describe the biological sciences without recognising that it's its roots are, are, were not in parallel with, with science, with the development of science, but were in service of the development of a political ideology, right? Which was empire and colonial expansion and, and so on. And eugenics is another sort of version of that. So in the 19th century, one of the key questions as in, in a politically tumultuous time with industrialization and expanding urbanization and you know the uh, immigration from the colonies and and so on and so on population control is an eternal idea we're a few decades after malthus at this point and the reason i think that eugenics is fundamentally not a scientific movement but an ideological and political one is because it's a, it's an attempt to bring science into a long standing political idea which is which is population control yeah. I, I think it's I, I argue in the book that it's, it, it becomes ultimately it's pseudoscientific it's bad science I don't think it can or did work whatever work means 
But at its inception, it is, oh, we've got a problem in society, which is population control. And here's a new bit of science, which is Darwinian evolution, natural selection. So let's use this to to, to fulfil our political ideologies. Mm. So, so far, we've we've spoken in fairly vague terms about population control, um, theoretical ideas about improving the, quote, stock. But what did that mean in reality? What are some of the, the methods and mechanisms that have been used by eugenicists? Well, yeah, I mean, again, amazing question, which is quite difficult to answer, because I think that one of the things that emerges from looking at the long history of population control is that it's an eternal feature of all societies. So, you know, Plato describes it in Republic, in books five and six of Republic. Uh, Plutarch describes it as being a sort of central pillar of Spartan society, and they're, they're one of the reasons they're viewed with such military might. Um, there are examples of infanticide throughout history in pretty much every culture, and infanticide selecting, yeah, or, or rather killing babies that are deformed or undesirable is a part of the overall um, sort of population control methods that have been employed for thousands of years. It only turns into eugenics in the in the 19th century once we're in the post-Darwinian era. But the same ideas stand. It's selective breeding. Um, Plato talked about, in book six he talk, of Republic, he talks about how we, if we can quantify the quality of individuals, we can have gold standard women and we can have gold standard men. And those are the ones that should mate with each other in order to improve the quality of their of, of the population via via their babies being gold standard as well, and bronze standard with bronze standard and so on. So you've got a highly stratified, highly structured society that a philosopher king can have have sort of directional control over. Now that you know, republic never happened. That was never enacted. We know that from Seneca that Rome and and from from other reports that uh, Greece did have infanticide as part of their sort of attempts to control populations. So if we if we move on from the kind of ancient conception of this idea to the 19th and 20th centuries, how did these high-minded ideas about eugenics actually affect the lives of real people and real populations? So in the 19th century, by the time the idea becomes sort of scientified and formalized by Francis Galton and by others. Well, there's a slight irony that it develops in, in the UK and it develops in, in the early, in the first decade of the 20th century under the auspices of the university where I was an undergraduate at UCL and still am a, a lecturer in the same department that was bequeathed to UCL by Francis Galton. A lot of the intellectual ideas and scientific ideas are formulated in those, in those labs, in those departments. But well, as it attempts to transfer it into being policy you know, via legislation, which is primarily fueled by Winston Churchill, a young Churchill, it never becomes policy in the UK because of campaigning of various people, primarily G.K. Chesterton, weirdly, who opposed eugenics all through his life, him lobbying the MP Josiah Wedgwood, who himself is part of the Darwin-Wedgwood sort of clan. And so the enforced sterilisation aspect of one particular bill, the 1912-1913 Mental Deficiencies Act, the enforced sterilization, which is the sort of eugenics aspect of it, which is here is a bunch of people who should be sterilized against their will, right? And that's the eugenics aspect to it. But because of Wedgwood and because of G.K. Chesterton, against Churchill's wishes, that clause is removed from the 1913 Mental Deficiencies Act. So in the UK, 
we never have a eugenics policy ever. Um, that is not what happened in the US. The US uh, instigated their first eugenics um, state legislature uh, in Indiana in 1907. And, and over the next few years, well, decades really, 31 states have official formal eugenics policies, which is enforced for decades. And, and, you know, estimates are difficult to sort of really verify, but we think like 70 to 80,000 men and women were involuntarily sterilized during that period. In the book, I focus on the UK as a development of the idea, on the US as the place where it's vigorously, um, enthusiastically um, uh, enforced. And then I talk about Nazi Germany. But, you know, 30 countries around the world had formal eugenics policies, which include coercive sterilization. And indeed, many of many countries in the world still have um, involuntary sterilization as part of as part of their their laws today. So the idea is, is, is popular in the in the first half of its existence. It's toxic in the second half of its existence, but it is an eternal feature of human populations, no matter whether your views are you know, historically illiberal or today in our sort of enlightened world, it still happens today. I think that a lot of people might be surprised to hear Churchill being brought into this story. And there are a lot of people here which you're, you might be surprised to see mentioned in, in the pages of this book. Could you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that I think we find so weird and so difficult is that this is an idea which is 100 years old, you know, just over. So this is this is very modern history for us. And it, it, it's a it's a it's a sort of irredeemably toxic idea to us now, especially instigated or the, or the toxicity of the idea prompted by the revelations about the Holocaust and the Second World War, right? Um, but before that, bipartisan popular support, both right wing ideology and left wing ideology, supports the idea of selective breeding via eugenics. So you've got Churchill on the one hand, who's who is pretty right wing and pretty racist. And I know that that's a sort of controversial thing to say and generates all sorts of hoo-ha, but it's un- it's unequivocally true. It is perfectly possible for one of our greatest leaders who who van- who is part of a key part of vanquishing one of the most evil forces the world has ever seen, was also profoundly racist, right? But he was also profoundly interested in in supporting the white supreme cause of empire and saw eugenics as a way of, of, of doing that. So he is, you know, really one of the key drivers. Churchill is one of the key drivers of eugenics policy in in this country, he kind of loses interest by the by the end of the First World War and, and concentrates on other matters. And then in the Second World War, he drafts the Moscow Declaration, which forms the framework for the prosecution of Nazis in the Nuremberg um, trials in forty five and forty six. So you know, people are complex. History is is difficult to untangle. On the left, you've got people like. Um, George Bernard Shaw, so prominent playwrights and literary types. You've got a lot of scientists, including people like Julian Huxley and some key people in my domain, such as Ronald Fisher and Carl Pearson, who are, I guess, less well-known outside of the scientific domains that is their legacy. But also something that I find completely fascinating is that first wave feminism and the suffragists were also big supporters of eugenics policies. Mary Stopes, someone who is primarily associated today with the reproductive autonomy for women, 
Uh, she was an awful, awful racist, a vociferous supporter of Hitler. And one of the reasons she was so interested in reproductive autonomy or reproductive control of women was because she despised Irish people and she despised Jews and wanted them to stop breeding. And so that aspect of support for eugenics is another sort of big theme in the book and, and in in the real world, which is the idea that poor people or undesirable people are having more children than, than higher quality people. Uh, and this, that's a sort of eternal threat and, a, and an eternal fuel for the eugenics movement. Something that I was most surprised to read in your book was how also African-American people who might be primarily targeted by by eugenics sometimes advocated it. So people like W.E.B. Du Bois thought that it might offer some opportunities for African-Americans. Can you explain that connection? Yeah, I mean, really, I found that incredibly surprising. I, I was, I've written a lot about the history of race before, uh, including in previous books, but that was a that came out of sideways for for, for me, um, and it's connected again with first wave feminism because he was he was he was closely associated with Margaret Sanger, and Margaret Sanger was it, you know one of the key um, developers of of reproductive rights for women in in America, and founded what became Planned Parenthood. And Du Bois was interested in what has become known as racial uplift. So how do we improve the quality of lives for black people in America? But he also, in some of his writings, as a means of generating racial uplift, improving the quality of lives for black people in America, he he took a very eugenicist view, which is that um, too many lower socioeconomic status black people were having too many children rather than um, higher socioeconomic status black people, and that they should be encouraged. So one of the things that happens in America in the early 20th, uh, you know, first two decades of the 20th, is that the protagonists try to encourage working class white Americans to embrace eugenics as an idea via state farm fairs, right? They have better baby contests in state, state agricultural fairs. And Du Bois adopts a similar sort of attitude that we can have better black baby competitions um, in and around places like Chicago. And this and this would improve the quality, and I'm doing air quotes for people who can't see me, which is everyone, <laughs> the, the quality of, of, of the people who, who we are concerned with. So, you know, really surprising discovery that for me, um, because one of the things that eugenics does in every inception wherever it's in, in, uh, deployed, is that it targets people of, who are poor. And, and it targets racial minorities in America particularly because that's very closely associated with, with poverty. So you've got a group of people who are disproportionately affected by eugenics policies and a branch within that population who think that eugenics is going to be the solution to their problems. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Population control is eternal. It becomes scientified in the 19th century. For 50 years, it's extremely popular. Then it becomes extremely toxic. But the idea persists. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So we've spoken about how these ideas were fermenting throughout the 19th and early 20th century. But by the time we get to the middle of the 20th century, we see eugenics in perhaps its most devastating form um, as it arose in Nazi Germany. So how did these ideas take hold in Nazi Germany? Were were the Nazis just weaponizing ideas that already existed or were they building on them and introducing new things to the eugenics thinking? Yeah, so a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. So you've got you've got the development of the ideas, the sort of the the, the global in the global West, I should say, um, uh, sort of soil in which the eugenics idea is planted is is all of those things we talked about at the beginning. You know, industrialization, more visible poor, urbanization, expanding cities, immigration from the colonies, and so on. There's also uh, the you know the permanence threats of people from the east having more babies that that's how it's that's how it's expressed in in weimar germany and then into nazi germany in the uk it's more that internal class lower classes of people are having too many babies in america it's immigrants are having too many babies but i'm broadly speaking um so you've got the similar sorts of ideas the threat of 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 the powerful not having enough children becoming decadent but in germany the, 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 there's a there's a big idea about about nordic purity which becomes aryan purity um and feeding off ideas from galton in in the uh in in london um there's a really interesting sidebar to the development of eugenics in germany which is pre-nazi so pre-1933 which is that they weren't anti-semitic Right, so they weren't. They, the, the, many of the key protagonists, particularly this guy called Alfred Plötz, who's the kind of the, the equivalent to Francis Galton in Germany, think, thinks that because of the successes of Jewish people 
in various domains which are considered important, particularly sort of the intellectual domains. He thinks that the Nordic people should breed with Jewish people in order to improve the stock of, of Nordic people. But that changes in the 1930s with, with Hitler seizing power in 33. Many of the eugenicists sort of accept that the, the virulent anti-Semitism of Hitler um, uh, and the policies of the Third Reich are the best way to get their overall eugenics policies enacted across Germany. So they sort of concede that anti-Semitism is going to be part of the eugenics project, having previously thought it was actually going to be a solution in part of the eugenics. So you've got you know great inconsistencies there. But, it, but one of the things that I think is not well, well, it's very well documented, but it's not sort of very well known uh, outside of the people who study this area, which is that most of the inspiration for what becomes the formalized eugenics programs, racial hygiene, rats uh, and um, hygiene in German, and, and their euthanasia program, which becomes known as Axion T4 in, in 30s, late 30s. Most of the inspiration for how that becomes um, legislated for comes not inspired by, but directly derived from American eugenics policies. To the extent that, for example, there's, there's a guy called Harry Lachlan, H.H. Lachlan, and in 1920, he writes a book in which he suggests um, a sort of template, a boilerplate eugenics policies, because he was aware that so many states were writing their own eugenics policies that they were they were a bit ad, ad hoc and all over the place. So he, he wanted to standardise it. And that goes into a 1920 book. That book and that legislation, that proposed legislation, is the, directly translated into German and becomes the template for the 1933 racial hygiene law that Hitler passes in, in June, June or July 1933. So it's one of the first pieces of legislation written in, in Nazi Germany. It is a translation of American eugenics policy. Some of the Americans, so the Rockefeller Foundation are funding eugenics research in Berlin, Lachlan himself is uh, is given an honorary degree um, in Germany, and so there's these extremely strong ties. They're not they're not sort of conceptual or in, inspired by. They are direct, documented ties um, between the development of, of eugenics policies in Germany that they get from the from the US. Mm. The Americans were well ahead of the game and. And the Nazis took it on and then took it to, to extremes. The Second World War and the Nazi crimes inspired by eugenics are often they're often hailed as the death knell of eugenics, really. That when these crimes were uncovered, everybody suddenly turned away from eugenics. But you suggest in your book that that wasn't necessarily the case. What was the immediate aftermath of those crimes being uncovered? Yeah, it's not, you know, it's, it's never as neat as the as the nice story that we like to tell ourselves. Eugenics was already beginning to fall from favour in America in the 1930s, partly because it was becoming clear that the Third Reich's euthanasia and eugenics policies were, were e extremely bad. Uh, secondly, because 
the American eugenicists were failing to demonstrate what they'd set out to prove, which was that particular diseases and particular traits ran in families in particular ways. So the, 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 you know, the financial plug was pulled in the 1930s on the ERO, the Eugenics Records Office based at Cold Spring Harbor. So it was already beginning to fall away as the war is developing. And then when the horrors of the, of the Holocaust are revealed to the world, I think what I argue happens is that the, the word itself becomes toxic. The Nazis' actions which had eugenics policies or principles as a sort of lifeblood through them, but are so much more than, you know, the, 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 the concentration camps, the death camps are not, they're not simply an expression of, of eugenics policies that are, or ideas that have come before, but it is part of the lifeblood of, of what happens. And we see the emergence, you know, in the Nuremberg trials, the second wave of the trials are the doctor's trials, uh, which is the USA versus Karl Brandt um, et al., which is 45-46. And in there, Brandt and others describe the US policies as being their inspiration again. And, and I think that that contributes to the, the term eugenics, the idea of eugenics being becoming toxic, but it happens much much more slowly. You know, we still have eugenics organisations in the UK until the sixties and seventies, and in America is the same. And eugenics labs sort of they they mutate into human genetics labs. And indeed, the the, the Department of Genes, Evolution, and Environment, where I am a lecturer, um, was in the nineteen nineties called the Golson Laboratory, where I was an undergraduate. But before that, well, nineteen oh four stroke 907 depending on how you name it it's the eugenics records office in 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 the uk so it's not like they you know everyone went uh the the horrors of the holocaust are now in the in the public domain the nazis were baddies and and that's the end of that um the idea of eugenics continued well into the late 20th century and arguably continues to this day so you mentioned there the transition from eugenics into human genetics. Can you explain that for us a bit? Where do you draw the line there? What's the transition from this toxic idea into one that actually is now perfectly acceptable and helpful to scientific improvement? Yeah, well, as you're probably detecting from, from this conversation, I'm really not into clear lines. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. where, where the line gets drawn is, well, there isn't a line. But there's an underlying principle, which is that the scientific, or arguably pseudoscientific basis of the, of the eugenics ideology is the study of heredity, right? I mean, it's just inheritance. It's how, it's asking questions like, why does particular diseases or particular traits flow through families in, in, with particular patterns? It's why do our children look more like us than random strangers? So the foundations of genetics are inextricably intertwined with the foundations of eugenics. But the difference is that, as we, as we talked about a little bit, eugenics is always a political ideology. It's, it's science marshaled into policy, or pseudoscience marshaled into policy or ideology. What emerges after the war is effect, effectively a purification of the study of heredity by, with the removal of the ideological basis of it. So a lot of the research, a lot of the researchers who were eugenicists in the pre-war era um, become geneticists in the post-war era. In Germany, that's particularly interesting because a lot of them were part of, of eugenics policies that were enacted in concentration camps. And many of them transition into becoming respectable geneticists 
with their histories barely an inconvenience. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we think we think that some people such as Otmar um, Freiherr Fershua, who, who was Joseph Mengele's boss, destroyed records which enabled him to continue. I, I think he got issued with a 500 mark fine, which is, I would describe that as barely an inconvenience. At the same time, uh, you know, you get the emergence of human genetics as a robust and much more ethically um, conscious uh, field of research. And from that, within that, it's not just we're studying heredity here, but actually we, there's, a, there's a shift from the idea that we're changing populations to make them better to we are looking at heritable diseases and and looking at how they run through families and therefore the implications and then the development of technology, which is how do we treat those diseases? Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm in no way uh, interested in condemning the behaviour of my contemporaries. I'm, I am a geneticist. I work in a genetics lab and I was an undergraduate in a place where, where we developed techniques like in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And these are all ideas which are, or techniques, they're not just ideas, they're techniques which are to alleviate the suffering in individuals and to give people, parents, women choices about bringing new lives into the world and the, and the, possible, the possibilities of, of their suffering as well. I don't think they're eugenics, but I do think they share a sort of ancestral branch with the eugenicists and with eugenics. And I also think that they're techniques that we've developed in the 70s, 80s and onwards that the eugenicists of the Victorian era would have been fascinated by mm. because they, we, we now are beginning to elicit a sort of molecular control over reproduction in a way which they fantasised about but had no idea how to do because it was 100 years ago and they didn't really understand how biology worked. That ancestral inheritance is fascinating because over the last couple of years, there's been a, a huge wave to reassess the legacy of historical figures. And of course, scientists are falling into that as well. Um, how have institutions like UCL, where you're based, how have they grappled with the these difficult legacies of people who often founded um, institutions there or paid for massive laboratories, for example? Yeah, well, you know, this is this is one of the sort of defining conversations of our of our time now, isn't it? Um, and and the eugenics movements and the people who were involved in the early eugenics movements and the institutions, as you say, like UCL, are really part, absolutely part of that conversation. So we've got Galton, who was never actually at UCL, but bequeathed money and and buildings and staff a professorship to UCL. And then his primary disciple, Carl Pearson, probably the, I, I mean, I think legitimately the founder of modern statistics. The next Galton professor was Ronald Fisher, someone of equal scientific stature, truly a Leviathan scientific mind, entire fields based on, on the work of those, those three. And they were all passionate, enthusiastic eugenicists. Galton was a clear white supremacist and profound racist. Pearson was, well, it turned out to be um, sort of politically a socialist, um, but also incredibly anti-Semitic and incredibly uh, sort of imperial in, in, in his, his outlook about British people dominating the world. Fisher, a bit more nuanced. I mean, not, not as, as anti-Semitic or as overtly racist as the other two, but a eugenicist in all of his work from, his early, from the age of 18 onwards. One of the things I argue for 
but I, I want it to be a discussion more than anything, is that their work in the sciences, their scientific work on whose legacies entire fields are entirely dependent, wasn't separate from their ideology, their ideological views about eugenics, that it was they were developed in parallel and so in some ways in the stats is developed in service of their political ideologies. And I think that's a discussion and an argument. The way UCL um has handled this is is what well, there was a two-year eugenic inquiry that finished into February 2020. And one of the conclusions of this inquiry, which I, I I gave witness testimony to, but I actually think was quite a bad inquiry. And nevertheless, the outcome of the inquiry was the removal of Fisher Galton and, and Pearson's names from, from campus. Now we have these conversations a lot. I think that history is the process of understanding and analysing with a contemporary lens stuff that's happened in the past. So when people say, you know, when people get angry about it in the Telegraph and say, you can't change history. Well, I mean, that's that's just literally the opposite of what history is. History is always changing. You can't change the past is what they mean. Um, and, and, then, and then in the case of que- uh, these the sorts of questions about taking down statues or renaming things or denaming things, well... When people make say that's erasing the past, I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that that again is the literal opposite of what's happening here. And naming a lecture theatre after some guy that's been dead for a hundred years without any giving any context is simply elevating the status of someone from history without giving any explanation or any sort of historical context about who they were or what they did. Mm-hmm. Whereas denaming that lecture theatre, if you do it right. It does contextualize it. But the point is that it's a discussion, right? And then we have this discussion, we talk about it and people knock it back and forth and, and so on. Finally, we've obviously focused here primarily on the history of eugenics, but the second part of your book is uh, looks at its, what you call its troubling present. Can you just give us an idea of how this, this dark legacy is continued today? Yeah, I, so... Like we were talking about a minute ago, eugenics as an idea, eugenics as a word becomes toxic. And most countries abandon over the over the second half of the 20th century any eugenics legislation. But that doesn't mean that the practice doesn't continue. And so we've got plenty of examples of, of coercive sterilization in America today. Right, ongoing cases in Canada and America. We think that in the ICE detention centres, the immigration detention centres, that um, up to twenty women had enforced involuntary sterilisation. There's ongoing lawsuits in California. You know, California, famously liberal, was the was the most enthusiastic eugenics embracer in in, in America. Um, there's ongoing lawsuits with hundreds of First Nation women in Saskatchewan and, and, and Canada against coercive and enforced sterilization. So the numbers are significantly lower than they were in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, but it does still happen. But then you look in India and China, and the numbers are huge. So coercive or enforced sterilization in India has been effectively policy since the late 1970s. And, and some estimates are that either semi-permanent or permanent sterilization of women via IUDs or tubal ligation is the most common form of, of birth control for women of re- reproductive age. In the 19, late 1970s, there was a period of a couple of years which was known as the emergency, where 
for various reasons, sort of, sort of some pretty martial law principles were, were adopted by Indira Gandhi's government. And part of that was the, was the enforced or coercive sterilization of men initially, but then it was recognized that men are much more likely to resist. And so the policy was switched to, to, to women. And that the legacy of that continues in India to this day. In China, which I know is not a democratic uh, political system, 10,000 women over the course of three months were coercively sterilized under the what's known as the Iron Fist campaign. So that's 10,000 women in three months had enforced sterilization for violating the one-child policy. Now, I, you know, the term has gone out of favor and it's irredeemably toxic, but that that sounds a lot like state eugenics policy to me happening in the the two most populous countries on earth so population control is eternal it becomes scientified in the 19th century for 50 years it's extremely popular then it becomes extremely toxic but the idea persists that was adam rutherford his book control the dark history and troubling present of eugenics is out now published by Orion. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collins. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.